Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber and I am sitting here with Anna Chizinski, James Harkin and Alex Bell. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with my fact this week. My fact is that a message in a bottle that was thrown off the Titanic as it was sinking was found one year later washed up on a shore in Ireland, only a few miles from the home of the man who threw it. That's it's pretty extraordinary. So it this could is... be that he just dropped it on his way to the Titanic. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> so this is a this was a nineteen year old. He was called Jeremiah Burke. He was from Glenmire, County Cork, in Ireland, and. Um, the, the way that they were able to verify the bottle, because there's been a lot of forgery bottles that were claimed to be, mm. um, so people trying to make money. Um, this bottle was a bottle of holy water that his mother had given to him as sort of, sort of good luck thing. And he used one of his own shoelaces to tie it up as he threw the letter and the bottle overboard. Um, wow. Saying this didn't fucking work, mum. <laughs> Maybe send me a better good luck charm next time. <laughs> yeah, so the um, the message has a date on it. It's slightly unclear. So they it could be the 10th, 12th. 13th we know that it's sunk on the morning of the 15th but so i don't know why he would have yeah that doesn't make yes that's very odd i think at the best of times i don't necessarily know what date it is straight away i think as you're going down with the titanic maybe you're going (laughs) what date is it guys what date is it asking the person next to you who's clinging off dear life sorry do you know what date it is Is (laughs) it monday but yeah so um this bottle washed up and i've looked at it on google maps it is literally just a couple of miles separate where the area of where they lived right to this shore and it was found by a coachman who um found it and i uh, i didn't get to the bottom of this bit of the story but presumably knew the area knew the people in the area and thought ah this guy you know he's he said burke of glenmare cork i know this family i know the uh, the burks i'm gonna see if this is him and so delivered it to the mother who a year yeah. later received this bottle you could argue that it was a hoax uh, at the same time it's only been reported in the last few years properly again since it happened because they've been lending it to a museum. So they, they didn't sell it, didn't go through auctions. It's been a family heirloom since. Yeah, I suppose the natural currents would take it there anyway, wouldn't it? I, I suppose reckon, yeah. so, yeah. That's kind of the obvious place for it to end up. So where did the, the Titanic launch from Liverpool, was it? or It went from Southampton, know. then I think it went That's to it. France, and then it went to mm. Ireland, and its last stop off was in Ireland, I think. Was it? Okay, ah, I, I didn't know that, all right. Um, but yeah, that is such a weird coincidence. But it's so weird how many messages in bottles, or maybe it's not weird, how many messages in bottles do get tossed overboard and found. And there are so many great stories. So another really good message in bottle coincidence that I liked is um, that in April 2012, a UK fisherman called Andrew Leeper was fishing near Shetland and he found a message in a bottle and it was a note that had been dropped at sea in 1890 and it was one of those that wanted to investigate ocean currents so oceanographers were always doing this to investigate where the messages ended up to see what the ocean currents were like. Anyway, Andrew Leeper found this message in a bottle in 2012 and so it was, and it was really nice because that meant it was the 315th to be put in that log started in 1890. So 315 of those messages had been retrieved. 
it's still going. The log is still a it's thing. Still, they're still keeping oh the log God. going. Some incredibly bored researcher still sitting there. Handing, yeah, desperately waiting. Town. Every 40 years. Um, but what I liked about this guy was that he then broke the record for that's the longest wait anyone's ever had to read a message in a bottle. And the previous record holder had been his mate, Mark Anderson, who'd broken it in 2006 in the same boat. So what? how weird is that? What? So he's friends with him and he did like Leaper did an interview with the papers when he then broke his friend's record and he said, My friend Anderson is very unhappy that I've topped his record as Anderson never stopped bloody talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean if anything screams hoax, I'm more suspicious of that <laughs> yeah, one than I am of that one. <laughs> In 1954, I was just so I was just looking up other bottles that have been chucked in, actually yeah. been chucked in rather than found. Um, Guinness decided to do an advertising promotion, and they threw 50,000 bottles into the ocean with messages in to Guinness oh bottles, God. which I find unbelievable. So it's it's known as being Guinness's longest advertising campaign yet because they're still turning up. But I can't believe that would never be allowed today. No, just dumping 50,000 bottles in the it's ocean. It's illegal in a lot of places. Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah, well, it definitely is. So you'll get fined in Canada for five thousand dollars if you throw a bottle into the water and um, we found this out because there was a story this year of a guy called harold hackett from prince edward island and he's thrown an estimated ten thousand messages into the ocean um since he started and he said he has to retire because he doesn't want to get um arrested well not arrested mm. but fined good yeah yeah good. i don't know if that's all his life meant to him throwing messages in bottles into the ocean I have limited sympathy with someone like, it was my life dream to pollute the ocean. <laughs> and I can't believe that the government is... Like, um, in the 16th century, it was also illegal to open a bottle if you found it. Yeah, I never found evidence of that. Is no, that I, think, I think that yeah. was a Is this the whole Queen Victoria yeah. having a... No, Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Queen Elizabeth having an uncorker of messages. Yeah. So I think that's she did have that because it's mentioned in a Victor Hugo novel. I think that was the first mention, and that was right. like two a hundred years later. Okay. Now, I, she can't have had an uncorker. But it's not, that's not at least a modern invention, is it? No, I, I, think, I think fake news still exists, even if Victor Hugo is penning it. That's true. <laughs> In his novel. Yeah. His fictitious yeah. novel. novel. <laughs> I don't know how many Victor Hugo novels you've read, but there is a lot of extremely boring, technical, true stuff. In oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, literally, you'll get like three chapters on the sewage systems of Paris and stuff oh, okay. like that. So. Oh, no, James's resentment comes out about the fact that he's been reading the same Victor Hugo novel for a year now, which is genuinely true, right? How's if, it going? If anyone here remembers us talking about Victor Hugo, it was probably about six months ago. Yeah, that was on our 2018 tour at like... Yeah, and I'm still reading Les Miserables. Yeah. <laughs> um, with the, the latest sort of modern instance that I read of this on Corker comes down to a 1978 book called The $12 Million Note by Robert Krask. In it, there's true stories, and then there were also hoax stories. And the thought is, is that this was in the book as a hoax story, but it got mixed up in all the reviews and so on when people were talking about this is a true story and then this is a hoax, oh. and, and that's why it spread. So the idea, just to explain, that she had an official uncorker of bottles because Queen Elizabeth I didn't want anyone else uncorking bottles that contained yep. secret information. Yes. So a bottle was found, wasn't it, uh, that was thrown from a Navy ship, uh, supposedly, that had military details that were um, very uh, As in, classified. if anyone was throwing bottles over, they would often be people who were in the Navy or doing official work for the government, right? Checking out currents mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So they didn't want just anyone to be able to read them. And I, I don't know. I know what you mean, and I think you're right to be sceptical, and it's probably not true. But I don't think it's necessarily true that we're saying that one person had this as his only job 
or anything. It could no. be someone who was part of the royal household who had also had this job. Or... He's groom of the stool on the side. He's official <laughs> uncorker of, of various royal things. Um, yeah, so this idea of doing scientific experiments um, for the sake of finding out ocean currents and stuff by dropping messages in bottles in actually serves a purpose, which seems so weird to me. So there was this guy, George Parker Bidder, who threw a thousand bottles into the North Sea in 1906. And he promised a shilling reward for anyone who found the bottle and then sent it back to him, saying exactly where they'd found it. And in fact, uh, one woman found the last one in 2015 and she posted it back to the address. And the company in Plymouth that was still monitoring it had to then track down a shilling, an old shilling, (laughs) looking on eBay and old antique coin collectors to send her. That's so funny. Actually, the first ever uh, message in a bottle possibly might have been for that reason, which was supposedly Greek philosopher Theophrastus, who wanted to prove that the Mediterranean was fed by the Atlantic. And so mm. he put bottles in the Atlantic and saw them go around the corner into the Med, and he could prove that. Again, this is a slightly not sure if this is true or not. And did he leave a message saying, whoever finds us, can you tell me the location? Pretty and, much, right, yeah, that's wow. the idea. Uh, that's cool. And he saw them go around the corner, did no, you say? No, I think, again, this is possibly not true, but he would have put them right. in the water and then there would have been, like Dan says, a message saying, contact um, Theophrastus on, you know, oh, 075. Yeah. Yeah. Square, <laughs> Athens. <laughs> there was a thing on, like, the US um, government nautical site which said that a lot of the nautical maps we have now are based on those messages. So in the 1950s, I think, l- loads of messages in bottles were put in the Gulf of Maine, and all the maps we have of like all the different ocean currents there are basically based on where everyone picked all those messages up and where and you know then they sent back saying hey i'm here i've just found this and that's where a lot of ocean maps come from and now we've got like satellite technology and stuff also i think quite recently i'm sure we must have mentioned this but there was all those rubber ducks that fell off a tanker didn't they and they floated around everywhere and we got loads of data from that yeah really that's still happening i think they still wash up every now and then yeah they do yeah I was re- so I read an article. There was a great mental floss uh, article all about messages in bottles, and then uh, the article veers away because this isn't technically a message in a bottle, but it's a pretty extraordinary story. So I'm just going to read it anyway. Um, this happened in 2001. There was a girl called Laura Buxton, and she was coming up to 10 years old. She released a red balloon into the air. She lived in Stoke-on-Trent in England, and on the balloon she wrote, "Please return to Laura Buxton." And on the other side of the balloon, she put her home address. So they released it into the air. It disappeared. A few weeks later, 140 miles away, um, the balloon hit a hedge when it came down. And uh, the ne- the person who picked it up saw the name and saw the address and immediately went, well, what the hell is going on? And went to his neighbor because his neighbor had a daughter who was 10 years old who also had the name Laura Buxton. So it landed exactly with the same age, same wow. name of a person. They got in contact and they were saying, what an amazing coincidence, let's meet up. So on the day of the meeting, the two girls, independently without having decided what they were going to do, both came in the same outfit. They both had a pink sweater and were wearing jeans. Jeans? Which, oh my goodness. <laughs> well, what are the odds? This is, just, this is just collecting all the coincidence that happened yeah, in the right. moment. <laughs> they were both roughly the same height, which was... Roughly, yeah. Two girls the same age yeah. and roughly the same height. So they were tall, tall 10-year-olds. So <laughs> They were very surprised, like, oh, you're a tall 10-year-old. Tiny little coincidence, yes. You like pizza? I like pizza. They both had brown hair. (laughs) They wore it in the same style. They both had three-year-old black Labrador retrievers. They both had a grey pet rabbit. Not on them. They left them at home. They both brought, they did bring their own guinea pigs, which were the same colour. 
and had the same orange markings on no their hindquarters. This is this is mental floss. So I know it sounds like I'm reading an April Fool's thing, but this is. But also, like, if that was in a local news story, yeah. I'm a journalist in a local news story in Stoke on Trent. I would go and go, come on, give me some more. What have you got? Do they have a dog? Yeah. 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 Okay. What is on local as well? Yeah. Exactly. What colour hair does she have? Brilliant. <laughs> nice one. Yeah. Can I just say this is? I don't know why these two are being like this. They must have woken up on the wrong side of the bed. Because that does happen sometimes. Sure. I these mean, mental things. I suppose you could say the law of large numbers means that there's enough things that happen in the world which aren't coincidental that some coincidental things do happen sometimes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Thousands of Laura Buxons pick up fan balloons every day. And yeah. They just happen not to be wearing the same clothes. But I, so but I tell you what, I do think we should still get excited by coincidences. I know it's like oh this could happen it's still amazing yeah <laughs> i think maybe we did get out of bed on the wrong side but on the other hand did you not when you're a kid release loads of balloons with notes on them and never get a single fucking reply from anyone yeah is that that's what you're did resenting you? yeah. now I've never it, done school. That. it was yeah. a very common thing for people to it do was. when i was a kid we don't do it now days. anymore because it's like bad for the environment but they used to be really in vogue to do that you didn't know everyone that. you'd write a note on your thing we yeah. would used to go to tiggy's for our birthday every year which is an italian restaurant in bolton and then we'd get a free balloon and then we'd write a note on it yeah yeah same every birthday party some bastard in bolton was shooting them down, I reckon. has <laughs> <laughs> got a shed with thousands of labels of dead balloons with James Harkin's name on. Um, you, there, was one, there was one person, one girl, who did it, and it landed in the back garden of Buckingham Palace, and the Queen sent it back. Did anyone, she? Anyone remember that? She was called um, Elizabeth Windsor, wasn't <laughs> yeah, she? Yeah. And she, she was, was a 90-year-old almost... girl from Buxton. And they were both turned out wearing crowns. <laughs> <laughs> and, and You've got a beefy to do? <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Alex. My fact this week is that the original Mastermind chair was specially modified to have detachable arms, quote, in case a contender is too large to fit between them, unquote. Mm. Okay, so we're going to explain what Mastermind is for non-British people. Yes, so it's a long-running quiz show it's been running since 1972 it's a very like paired back quiz show um so it's it's a dark studio you have a person asking questions and you have four contestants and they each come up to a a chair one at a time and the chair is the kind of the the famous symbol of the show um and each contestant so asked a specialist subject so you prepare a specialist subject so if you know for example uh titanic facts and everything about it you would get quizzed in a very quick space of time everything about the titanic and the more points you get you win it's, it's, it's like an expert quiz yeah like exactly really and it was based on um a guy who was in the war in second world war he was now ref gunner and he was captured in germany and questioned by um, the germans and it's kind of supposed to be almost the same way that he felt at the time which is you've got a big light on you they're asking you questions again and again and again uh, to kind of put you under as much pressure as possible yeah. yeah yeah his name was bill wright and yeah exactly that he was a prisoner of war and he thought oh this will make a great game show when he was being <laughs> <laughs> when he was being interrogated by the nazis and um interestingly he says that in germany um so you you were asked three questions which is name rank and number um, and that's still the thing that in Mastermind, it's name, occupation and specialist subject. He took the rule of three that they he, and he directly associates it with that. And when they started it, Magnus Magnuson, who is the original host of the show, and his name is um, he's Icelandic. So that's an Icelandic name, Magnus Magnuson. Do you know what his dad's name was? No, I don't. What his, fir- what his dad's first name was? Yeah, it was not Magnus. No. So I, he changed it. Yeah. In Iceland, it's supposed to be 
your surname is son of your father. So my dad's called Michael, so I should be James Michaelson. Right. But his father was called Anna. Siegerstein, wasn't he? Siegerstein. So he should have been Siegersteinson. Yeah. Um, but actually, his father was called Siegerstein Magnuson. And in Scotland, of course, you have the same surname as your father. So he had to keep the same surname ah, as okay, his father. Okay, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, so, yeah, so Magnus, um, in, usually you'd be a quiz host or, you know, you'd have uh, a title like that. His title when he was doing the show was The Interrogator. So yeah. that's what he was introduced as. So it was completely tied into his experience. And he was actually a Nazi as well, wasn't he, Magnus Magnusson? He was, yeah. Was he? No. Oh, jeez. <laughs> no, he was at the National I thought, Treasure. I thought I missed that paragraph when I was reading into this. <laughs> Do you want to know what's weird, though, is that another little link in that I know from our friend who was on Mastermind, so Ian Dunn, who's a oh, big yeah. fan of QI and who we know, he went on Mastermind and he said when you fill in the forms when you're saying what your specialist subject should be, it's called the Mastermind SS form. They have a shot. You're yeah. kidding. That's yeah. very funny. Um, I read on Wikipedia, a they have a list of a few subjects that have actually been rejected. A few of the ones that have been rejected include routes to anywhere in mainland Britain by road from Letchworth. <laughs> um, the banana industry. Not allowed to pick the banana yeah. industry as you're... Not allowed uh, to pick it. Nice. <laughs> uh, orthopedic bone cement in total hip replacement is another. <laughs> and the last one on the wiki is perfect squares up to 99 squares. Yeah. Um, what is a perfect square, Dan? Um, it's 9,801. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's one point. <laughs> but uh, in recent years, I read in an article that subjects like Faulty Towers, Black Adder, Roald Dahl, Harry Potter, um, so they've been they've been ruled out because so many people have picked it that they've run out of questions basically they don't know what else to ask about black adder that's not been done before the thing with harry potter is that last year 262 people wanted to do it as a specialist subject wow on mastermind that's according to producer mark helsby the first three winners were women which was quite bizarre because far fewer women than men have ended up winning the titles um, not because women are less clever because of centuries and centuries of systemic oppression, blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, the first... I'm like you're not totally bought into that. Theory, I would say I? that your specialist <laughs> subject is not feminism. <laughs> Look, I believe it. It's just a long explanation to go into. But yeah, the first three people who won were women. And then in 35 years, it's been eight women and 21 men who've won it. But after the first three years, everyone was speculating, is a man ever going to win Mastermind? Um, can we talk about the chair very quickly? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the chair uh, was voted in a survey for House Beautiful magazine as the second greatest chair, basically, uh, of pop culture. Um, well, can, we, can we guess the first? Yeah, have a go. Yeah. Okay. Just one extra bit of context. The se- this is It was voted as the second most iconic chair of the 20th century. I was going to say the wool sack in the House of Lords or whatever it is. Is it the sofa from Friends? No, it's not. Okay, so it's... It's in pop culture, right? Uh, Is it Cher, the singer? (laughs) No, it's in... Okay, so I'm going to say it's the 1960s. Um, It is a chair that made the newspapers because it was a scandalous... Nixon. It was was a scandalous chair, basically. Scandalous chair. Elvis! Elvis? Did he have a chair? Didn't he? So if you just had Elvis... His toilet? He died on the toilet, toilet, didn't he? They often call it the throne. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. Well, no. Uh, Is it the chair that Liza Minnelli sat on in that film? Is that 1960s? No, it's not. But it's interesting. Have a have a think in your head about what she does with that chair, and you might get to it somehow. 
is it, Chicago, is it, you're thinking. Um, she sits backwards. Does someone sit backwards on it in an iconic photo? We are so close. You, is it basic Marilyn instinct. Monroe or basic No, that's it. No, that's it. Christine oh. Keeler. Yeah, we go. Perfumo. Perfumo. Yes. Oh, One of the nice. most. Yeah, so that got voted the uh, Christine Keeler sitting backwards on a chair as the uh, most iconic. Very much that was more about Keeler than the chair. Except in, the, in its time, um, most comedians would parody that shot and still do of being naked on a chair yeah. that way round in reference to that. So that I think for that reason that chair so is the concept of the yeah. chair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I yeah, I can picture the picture you're talking about which I think means yeah. it counts. We'll allow it. <laughs> so the last chair on Mastermind um, was given to Magnus Magnuson when he retired. And they've got a new one now which like Alex says has these detachable arms. It is an Eames soft pad. It was designed in 1969, and it was designed by Charles and Ray Eames, who are basically the best chair designers in the history of the world. That's very Trumpish of you. Yeah. <laughs> I have these chairs. They make great chairs. They are the famous. They're the big names in chairs. They were a husband and wife couple, and they made loads of mass-produced chairs. And the first thing they ever mass-produced was a moulded plywood leg splint for World War II, mm. um, which they gave to all the soldiers, and it was moulded on Charles's own leg. And they sold um, 150,000 of them. So there were soldiers all around the world walking on an exact replica of his own leg. Wow. That's amazing. It's good though, isn't it? That's incredible. Uh, my favourite TV chair yeah. is the chair that was in the audition room when Robin Williams went to audition for the role of Mork. Um, Mork from Ork on Happy Days. So I think then oh, that, yeah. that span off into yes. Mork and Mindy, didn't it? Yeah. But um, the producer was a guy called Gary Marshall and Robin Williams came into the room and he was unknown at the time, walked in and Gary Marshall told him to take a seat and immediately Robin Williams went to the chair and stood on his head on it and Marshall immediately hired him saying he was the only alien who applied for the job. So Wow. It's cool. It really, cool. Those, those stories are quite dangerous because it encourages literally everyone to go into an audition and really break the mould. And can you imagine sitting there for hours after every single person comes in and does <laughs> yeah. something really annoying yeah. with the chair? You're the only one who sat on the chair yeah. you're hired <laughs> that was the test do yeah. what I tell you we're not looking for actual aliens we need an actor <laughs> we need somebody who's going to be easy to work with we can do the same performance time after time in multiple takes yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay it is time for fact number three and that is Chazinski my fact this week is that one competition at the Highland Games used to be pulling the legs off a cow in order to win a sheep. They're really hard in Scotland, aren't they? Because when I was at school, you used to pull legs off a daddy long legs, but in Scotland, yeah. they pull legs off a cow. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it sounds like a metaphor for like ruining something, because a cow is more valuable than a sheep. So why don't you just keep the cow and leave the legs on? So the cow is dead at this point, I should say. Okay. So it's yeah. not Phew. as awful. Um, still but, quite awful. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty it's horrible. Pretty it's ideal. It's a strength test, and it would be impressive if someone could twist the legs off a cow with his own bare hands. It's an emotional <laughs> strength test as well to witness what you've just done to this poor cow. If you ever see Anna in the countryside and you want to impress her, <laughs> <laughs> tug the legs off the nearest quadruped. <laughs> this was actually invented in 1820, and um, I don't think it was that long-lasting, but the idea of the contest was invented by a guy called Alistair MacDonald, who was a clan chief and apparently he was just this really cool um eccentric vibrant clan chieftain character in fact he was who the character of fergus MacIver in the waverley walter scott's waverley novel was based on and yeah he said let's do this that'll be fun and the first prize is a fat sheep okay wow. yeah. and the reason it didn't last probably is because it was extremely difficult 
Yes. Um, I read one, um, I don't, I think it might have happened maybe once or twice in one or two different ones, but the one that I read was in Invergari, mm -hmm. uh, and there was only one man who succeeded after struggling for about an hour. Um, <laughs> as a reward, he received his sheep and a eulogistic speech from the chief. Nice. Um, the, has anyone been to the Highland Games? No. No. I, I have been. Yeah, it's What's really it like? awesome. It's really good. It's like, it's, it's almost like a fate. The one that I went to is like mm -hmm. a village fate. Um, but then you've also got these incredible things happening with people throwing these massive weights, yeah, like wow. really, really high, mm. like really high. Is this wow. the big logs? The big I didn't. I saw caper that tossing. the caper tossing, yeah, the caper tossing. The main one I saw, they were like they had these kind of you know like kettle bells that you would use oh, in yeah. the gym. Mm -hmm. yeah. They were throwing this over a big, big, big high height. Wow, I was really impressed. Is it kind of like um, high jump? Is there a is there a bar? Yeah, that so they... we get higher and higher and higher right. every time. And the caber toss is not about how far you can toss it. It's about you have to toss it so that it lands at 12 o'clock, so it lands upright. So you yeah. work, it's got to stay up in the air for like an hour and a half if you jump in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Depending no. on time you throw it. <laughs> Don't throw it at 9am. <laughs> it's not, yeah. It, as in it lands uh, like facing away from you as it were so yes. it needs to do a full rotation yeah. 180 and then land exactly facing away from you exactly down the line. perpendicular to the earth yes ah so it would be extremely hard to pull the leg off a cow right mm. i think they twisted <laughs> people tend yeah. to just say twist quite and a is lot that, is that how you pull a if is that i think that is how you would do it yeah i think so let's say you want to pull a, a chicken leg off a chicken yeah you tend to give it a twist while you're pulling don't you i can see what you're saying actually i can picture that now yeah. Do you know uh, the ideal shape for a cow uh, in the 19th century? It's got four legs for starters. Well, unless is it's it kind of square? Because if because yeah. I, I can't really picture cows because I can't picture anything. But if I ever had to draw one, I'd draw it particularly square for an animal. Yeah, right. and that's if you picture drawings in the 19th century, then cows would be vast and very square. And there was a lot of competition between members of the nobility and landowners about getting the right shape for your animals. Mm. So yeah, if you look at cows, they don't look like real cows, and the actual the size of a cow between 1710 and 1795 increased by a third so people were really building up their cows sorry what were the dates Ada? uh between 1710 and 1795 so that was when wow. they started getting so it's bigger. only a couple of generations yeah absolutely wow. but um cows were supposed to be um rectangular exactly re rectangular sheep were supposed to tend towards being oblong and pigs the ideal shape for a pig was a football shape well what kind of football as in, in those days was it's FA regulation standards, black and white hexagon. Yeah. <laughs> I think round. So if you if you get pictures of pigs, very often there'll be the picture with their stomachs literally on the floor. Mm. Oh, like a pot-bellied pig. Because eventually yeah. they had to turn them into footballs, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. Pigs bladders, mm. footballs. Yeah. yeah. So why were the cows square? Was it because usually when you make things square, it's so you can stack them? But I don't think they did that with cows. <laughs> a bit more in the lines. Yeah. <laughs> wow. No, this was just getting them bigger, and that yeah. was the shapes they tended towards. I read, uh, just going back to the history of the Scotland Highland Games, um, I read that the very first one, so they don't, they don't know exactly where the first one occurred, but it is believed that one of the first early venues was at Fetteresso, and um, technically it's a few miles south of the Scottish Highlands. So the first one may not... It's in not, the Lowlands. It's in the Lowlands. <sighs> so it's actually the Lowland... Games. games that's yes. a really good mm. fact if it's true if it's yeah. true yeah unfortunately as the article says um it's if it true. did happen there <laughs> it predates recorded history we'll never know uh because really the first one which is kind of a modern style was in braemar in the um early 1800s and it came at a time when the scottish were kind of finding themselves and that's when all that kind of tartan 
it did exist, but it was when it was properly being formalised. Yeah. Like it's quite an informal type thing. There aren't the Highland Games, or there weren't the Highland Games where no, it happened about at the same time. Of them. It's yeah, it's more just like a festival type thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Various times over the summer, every place will have one. And it's weird. It's not just these. Like any time I've thought of it, I've thought of throwing these giant logs and, as you say, the kettlebell style weights. But they do stuff like um, biggest bowl of porridge, you know, as a <laughs> <Yeah>. competition. <laughs> and there was one that was made in 2010 that set the record, which is um, it was 690 liters of porridge. So and it, it feed 2,000 people. It was judged by Goldilocks, who said, "This porridge is too small." <laughs> 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 so, yeah. it's all tourists as well isn't it now? Yeah, no Scottish much. people have ever yeah. been to the Highlands. and you games. know who well you know who used to go to it yeah. uh, Billy Connolly all the time and yeah. as a result he used to bring his best mates along who happened to be famous comedians as well one of which who went was Robin Williams oh, really? just to bring old alien chairman back into the all conversation yeah <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. My fact this week is that you can cure your arachnophobia by drawing pictures of smiling spiders. So good. I'm actually going to try this. Can Are you, you arachnophobic? Really? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Do you um, need to draw like a like a a nude a life model kind of thing? Do you need the spider there? Well, they are always usually nude. Spiders, because <laughs> they, they can't get trousers with eight legs. So, so if you drew like a sexy photo of a spider, would that make it less scary? Like a profumo sitting yeah, on a chair, four legs over the side. <laughs> <laughs> so this is um, a clinical hypnotherapist called Adam Cox. Um, he is British, or he practices in Britain, and he encourages his clients to draw brightly coloured smiling spiders with big eyes and he says that it reduces their feelings of anxiety towards the arachnids. But so does it cure you in a, your, presumably it's not like, okay, I'm going to be um, encountering a spider in the next five minutes, I'm going to quickly draw a picture of a smiling one to... No, it's a long-term therapy, so right. people are going week after week and drawing more and more spiders <laughs> and eventually it makes them feel less anxious. Yeah, it maybe okay. sounds like the early stages of a very severe phobia treatment, so as in, you can't even, because you know there are some phobias where you can't even say the word of the thing you're scared of yeah. and the idea of drawing a spider is probably really scary and horrible and thinking about the details of it is probably part well, of it. Well, I am an arachnophobe um, a little bit, not as much as I used to be as a kid, but I would always find it really hard to see a picture of them on in a book mm. and even now on the internet I find it quite hard I have to scroll yeah. past it me too quickly. Yeah. Really? yeah just get it out of shot and just read the text yeah, oh, it's wow. pretty hard Classic. to research this <laughs> <laughs> but so what's interesting as well is there was a study that was done in um, Queensland in Australia and uh, along with a, a UK um, university in Sussex and they were saying that if you have a fear of spiders, if you have arachnophobia, you are more likely to see a spider, as in you're hardwired, as they say, to notice the threats. So if you were out in Queensland and you were walking through the bush, if I'm walking with you and I'm less scared, I might not see a spider that's obviously there, but you are on edge yeah. waiting to sense. see one. Yeah, no, actually, it just that's, that's almost logical. I Robin. do have a problem with movement in general. So if I see any movement out the corner of my eye, it really freaks me out. And the reason they their movement is particularly weird because I think we mentioned recently actually how they move by hydraulic pressure. But I hadn't realized it was all spiders move in that way. So when they 
um, stretch their legs out. They're not doing it with their muscles at all. They're pumping blood out through their legs, which is why they move in that weird jerky way. And that's why when they die, they always shrivel up because Ugh. the pressure oh, disappears. Wow. So they shrivel up. Um, so basically, when they run, they have to have an erection in every one of their legs. That's exactly it, yeah. Wow. It's, it's very quickly getting hard and then not getting hard yeah, over and exactly. over and over again. Yeah. Um, their genitals are hydraulic as well, by the way. So are they? The, yeah, they operate with some hydraulic pressure. And also, they obviously have this really cool thing, spider penises, where they can keep on having sex without the spider. So there are quite a few spiders, like the orbweb spider, which will start having sex with a lady spider and then detaches its penis to get away. Because I've the football. Have to take a call. I'm so sorry. I'll be back in a minute. You have this. <laughs> exactly. And it's actually more effective without its spider attachment. As soon as the spider leaves, the penises tend to eject about 70% of their sperm after that. So they keep pumping sperm out. Wow. Even when the spider's gone. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I was I was looking into general phobias because obviously there are so many phobias out there and I found this long list just to see which ones are actual phobias because mm. there must be a phobia for everything but there's a limitation obviously on ones that have been given names. Yeah. So th- the ones that I found that I thought were quite interesting that have actual names assigned to them, um, there's a phobia for the fear of opinions. That's very interesting. That you'd be I'm just fearful. Not really of... sure what I think about that. <laughs> <laughs> there is the fear of flutes. When you say there is, um, yeah. as in a guy on the internet decided to attribute names to no. So this is fears. this is a big list that a guy wrote <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> of Wikipedia. Yeah, not Wikipedia. It's called something like uh, uh, phobia weirdphobias dot com or yeah. something like that. I think that's a really difficult thing, isn't it? Because there's a list of millions of them. There's yeah. like a yeah. fi- someone wrote one about a fear of a duck secretly looking at you or something yeah. like that. Yes. Which is obviously not true. Then on the other hand, there are such weird ones that are true. It's really hard to tell which ones are and aren't. So like fern phobia is definitely a thing. Is it? Being scared of ferns. I think quite a few famous people have got that. Fern cotton, which is very difficult for her. Yeah, because yeah. she's scared of cotton as well. Yeah. So that's... yeah, and fear of like holes and stuff like that is really common. Yes, I've yeah. heard of but that one. Then, I uh, fear of chins? Do you reckon that's a real one? <laughs> it's hard to imagine why, but that's what I mean. It's hard to say what it is and whether it isn't. Yeah. You know, a guy had his arachnophobia accidentally removed quite recently. So you, you can get rid of it accidentally, but it does involve really invasive surgery. This was a guy who'd always been terrified of spiders, and then also he got an illness where he started having seizures. And so he went in for an operation to get rid of his seizures, and they had to remove a bit of his amygdala. And the surgery went really well, but he woke up and he found just two slight changes to his character. He had this stomach-lurching aversion to a very specific kind of music. So when he heard it, it was the music on a particular advert. He was terrified, just hated it. And he was no longer remotely afraid of spiders. That's, That's really, really useful. Wow. I have um, a fear of invasive brain surgery, though, so it's a bit worse than my fear of spiders. So no. <laughs> <laughs> There's an organisation, a charity organisation in the UK called Triumph Over Phobia, Ooh. Top UK. One of the managers is called Trilby Breckman, and Trilby Breckman runs self-help groups. Um, he sounds like a really cool guy, and he said, we once had a guy who came to us for six weeks and never said a word. He just sat there. Then, eventually, he managed to say, I've got a social phobia, and then ran out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> so good. But 
I mean, we shouldn't be laughing. What if he's listening and there's just no attention? Who the hell recommended group therapy to a guy who has a fear of social environment? It's okay to laugh because he came back the following week and within a year he was running groups with by himself as well. So And now he's got a fear of being alone. <laughs> he stays in the group all the time. Um, I was looking up uh, what... Because I was like, what are spiders scared of? Because, you know, everyone's scared uh, yeah. of spiders. Um, most spiders are terrified of ants because ants contain formic acid, which is really bad for spiders. Oh, yeah. And and a lot of them will run for their lives if they see an ant, as it were. That's like a quote. They will, like uh, researchers say they sort of run away. Um, but the uni- in the University of Canterbury found that... Um, they even run away from some spiders will even run away from another species of spider called a jumping spider um with the gregarious jumping spider which pretends to be an ant that's its defense mechanism right. so yeah, and yeah. it scares away other spiders so it hides oh. its legs i think we said that yeah. they hide that two of their legs don't they so some species of spiders do that and pretend to be ants and that scares other species of spiders wow. who are scared of ants so what? as someone who's scared of spiders myself a little bit if i was to dress as a massive ant do you think they'd all kind of just leave me alone? Possibly. So the um, the spiders in the uh, in the TV series "I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here" must be feeling good this year because they're going to be missing a big ant on set this year. Oh, so. Very good. <laughs> um, why do you think you should never pick up a tarantula? Um, because. I hate them because <laughs> I might shit myself and if I shit myself no one's gonna hang out with me anymore you're right that makes your social phobia even worse because um, you'll scare them too much and they'll die it's the, it's similar so it's for their sake so their abdomens are incredibly thin and one little touch on the abdomen with your fingernail could split it open and they'll spill their guts all over the place Whoa. so you can't just like tickle it on its tummy or anything they hate a tummy tickle oh. stop doing that and if you drop a tarantula it'll almost certainly die Really? Uh, yeah, this is the advice of the um, oh the British God. Tarantula Society, which is a bit of a QI favourite, I think. So it was founded in the 1980s, but the woman who founded it was called Anne Webb. Which, oh, yeah. 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 That's going to make watching Home Alone again a more harrowing experience, knowing that that tarantula that gets loose and gets dropped and stuff. I mean, they must have had a stunt spider dressed as a tarantula, yeah, if that's probably. the case, because mm. he would have burst open in just, some of the scenes I think you're assuming too much knowledge of Home Alone from some of us I can't immediately remember the tarantula scene oh, oh, he jumps on his face. A, yeah. Yeah. the only thing I remember is Kevin with his hands to his face screaming because he's been left home alone <laughs> yeah that's so you've memorised the poster yeah. <laughs> that's not, oh, sorry I'm going to have to correct you again he's not screaming because he was left home alone he's screaming because he put aftershave on his face yeah. and he was himself. he yeah, 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 yeah. No. and he was pretending because he saw his dad screaming like that I, I don't think so and then it's, and then it's and then no, no, you I'll suggestively go. in the poster to make it look like he's screaming at the two robbers <laughs> who are either side of him in the famous poster. But I, in the context of the film, he's never screaming. I him. have an extremely clear, extremely <laughs> fake memory. <laughs> his mum screams. His mum sits up on the plane and goes, Kevin! That's, that's does he scream. not say Kevin? No, he no. doesn't say Kevin. Why would he, he say, say his, his own, own name? name? <laughs> doesn't make any sense. I still think you're right, though. <laughs> <laughs> what about in Home Alone 2? Does he do it there? No, because no, he's lost in New York. In that Although one. she says Kevin again yeah. in a scream. Come you know on. in Edvard Monk's The Scream, does he do it? <laughs> no, that's actually, no. he's just put he's after shape. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James? At James Harkin. Alex? At Alex Bell. And Chazinski? 
You can email podcast at qi.com. Yeah, or you can go to our group account at No Such Thing, our Facebook page, No Such Thing as a Fish, or our website, No Such Thing as a Fish.com. Alex designed it. Thanks, Alex. Uh, has everything, links to our tour, our new book. It's got a behind the scenes documentary called Behind the Gills, which uh, shows how we act on tour. It's a lot of ironing. And uh, and everything else of all the previous episodes and so on is up there. So check it out. No such thing as a fish.com. We're going to be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.